so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. This week, we'll hear about how our post-marriage culture affects the way we minister to others. And everything we know now about the world we observe, it only makes sense if you look at it through the lens of understanding that what Genesis 3 represented was the great tear in the fabric of the universe, the great, the great rip in creation, the, the, the great turning upside down, the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. And does this tell us that those who are involved in same-sex acts, those who would formalize same-sex relationships are involved in that conspiracy? It certainly does. Only after it makes clear that every one of us was in this conspiracy before them. How do Christians respond to a culture that increasingly condemns what the Bible calls good and right? At the ERLC's National Conference, Dr. Muller gave a talk titled Aftermath, Ministering in a Post-Marriage Culture, where he addressed how we can be faithful to the gospel in the midst of this moral revolution. I want to thank the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and in particular, Russ Moore, its president, for the the courageous leadership demonstrated in calling together a meeting such as this and demonstrating what we sincerely hope and pray will be the right kind of conversation. And as we do so, we do feel that sense of gravity. We feel inevitably the sense that there is something massive that is happening in our midst and something that requires a very significant Christian response. And we also come together with a sense of gravity that seems to be rooted in the fact that we have not thought this through as well as we know we should. And we find ourselves in the situation of needing to gather together to make sure we know exactly what it is the Christian should think and what it is that God has said in his word, what it is that we should think about as we envision the gospel, marriage, homosexuality, and the future of the ministry of the church. My task this afternoon is to discuss the gospel homosexuality and the future of marriage in the context of addressing ministry in a post-marriage culture. I just finished a major writing project. The book is entitled Aftermath. That kind of says how I I see the timing of where we are right now. The book is entitled Aftermath. The subtitle is Life, Love, and Liberty in the Wake of a Moral Revolution. And I'm just sharing with you that I have finished that manuscript and just in recent days sent it off. It's Massive. I, I had aimed for about 60,000 words. It ended up being over 100,000 words. There's just so much that it seems has to be said in order to say enough. But I share that with you because in finishing that book, I, I had an enormous sense that I was going to have to live with what I wrote in that book for the rest of my life. 
And, and when you realize that we're, we're now operating, ministering, living in a moment of such incredible revolutionary spirit, when, when so much seems to be changing under our feet, when, when these huge issues are, are taking shape in a, in a coming new world, it seems, it, uh, it seems a very big thing put into print, words that will be there for the rest of my life. I, I thus wanted to pour everything I know and everything I am, everything I can pray about, everything I can learn into that project. And I think that same kind of, of, of sense of importance and gravity is what brings us together for this kind of a serious conversation. We are living in a, in a time which can be described in so many different ways. It, it certainly seems that we're living at an historical precipice. We, we sense that there is, in our chronological mindedness of past, present, and future, we, we, we understand a disjunction is taking place right now between everything that we have known and, and, and what's taking shape out there before us. We're on the precipice of something huge. Theo Hobson, a British thinker, has suggested that what we are now experiencing in the West is nothing less than a moral revolution. And, it, and if that makes sense to you, you need to step back and ponder for a moment what this means. Because as he makes clear, there have been any number of different kinds of moral change that, that uh, have taken place. Moral changes are significant. They can be big, they can be little, but they don't change the fundamental landscape of the culture. There are moral shifts and and, and some of these are, are recognizable. I, I grew up when uh, you, we had black and white television. That's back when you had to schedule watching television because if you missed it, you missed it. And uh, Andy Griffith was on with uh, Otis the Friendly Drunk. And uh, it would be impossible for a sitcom now to feature such a character because there's been a major shift in the culture and a very positive one in this sense, away from understanding that somehow that kind of inebriation can be cute and, and comedic, now to understanding that it can be deadly. And so just given the sensitivity about drunk driving and such things, you can see even in popular culture how that changes, but it didn't change the entire landscape of the culture. Theo Hobson says that a moral revolution is different than a moral shift or a moral change because it does change everything in the culture. The culture becomes completely realigned on the other side. And he says, in order for this to happen, three things have to take place. I think this is extremely helpful. He says, the first thing that has to take place for a moral revolution, a, a, a massive U-turn in the culture, is that what was condemned has to be celebrated. That's very, very important. Something that was nearly universally condemned is now nearly universally celebrated. It's normalized. There's a, there's a, a huge U-turn in the culture, morally speaking. What was condemned is now celebrated. But he says that's just the first of three necessary dimensions of a moral revolution. The, the second comes when that which was celebrated is condemned. So if you're just thinking about the world in which we live and, and you're thinking about the issues that have brought us together here and you, you think about the definition of marriage and, and you think about... The, uh, the moral response to, uh, to same-sex relationships and same-sex acts, when you think about it in the context of the sexual revolution in general, it's not just that what was condemned is celebrated, but that which was celebrated is now condemned. And so in much of our society today, the sin is, is not certainly homosexuality, but what is simply dismissed as homophobia, this, uh, this complete shift. And it's not just one part, it's two. Half of this would not a revolution make. But... Hobson says there's then a third dimension that becomes necessary, and that is not only that that which is condemned must be celebrated, and then that which is celebrated must be condemned, but thirdly, those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. And, and that's where we are, and, and, and we sense that. And 
and gospel-minded Christians who are seeking to serve under the lordship of Christ and under the authority of Scripture are wondering, how in the world did this happen? And, and, and how do we explain how we are now to minister in the midst of this? What, what do we do? What do we think? What do we believe? How do we respond? Augustine, that great figure in the early church, that great bishop of North Africa in his book, The the City of God, pointed to the fact that the church in a moment of this kind of moral revolution often shows up at its best and at its worst. And and we sense that. We we, we can turn on the airwaves, we can listen to the radio, we can can listen to our, our, our friends speak, we can watch what's been going on, and we can see that sometimes it brings out the best, sometimes it brings out the worst. And and let's be honest, we're here gathered together because we want it to bring out the best. We want it to bring out faithfulness and and conviction and fidelity. We want it to bring out compassion and responsiveness. We want it to bring out what demonstrates the power of the gospel and would in no way subvert or compromise that very gospel. We're, We're here because we want it to bring out the best in us. Cover story in The Economist last week, that major news magazine of Great Britain is kind of like the Wall Street Journal and Time magazine combined for the Brits, had its cover story on the gay revolution, and and it pointed out, much like what we've also noted in so many other places, that this moral revolution has taken place with an unprecedented velocity. And Theo Hobson pointed that out, Kawhi Apaya at... Kwame Apaya at Princeton has pointed out much the same thing in his book, The Honor Code, showing that moral revolutions have happened in the past, and, and yet they've generally taken centuries to take place. And yet, on the issue of sexuality in general, on same-sex issues in particular, this, this moral revolution is happening at warp speed. The velocity is unprecedented. Humanity's not experienced this kind of moral revolution in the past, nor has the church We also need to recognize that it reaches such basic issues for us because as we are New Testament-minded, biblically-minded Christians, we come to understand that we cannot make and create or recognize a, a division between our sexual selves and our gospel selves, between our sexual selves and our disciples' Selves. We, we can't separate sexuality from the gospel because the New Testament resolutely refuses to do that. We also understand that we're talking about something as basic as marriage, that basic molecular structure of human civilization that, that Christians understand is a pre-political institution. It's a pre-fall institution. It's, it's a part of the goodness of creation and what God gave us in Eden when it was he who declared, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. And, and then we recognize that the, the confusion, the, the revolutionary spirit of our age isn't just about sexual morality as if we now understand, you could say, just about sexual morality. It's also about self-understanding. It's about identity. And that, that's scarier if we're really honest, theologically, gospel speaking. The identity issue is even scarier than the, the behavioral issues. And we come to understand that in the transsexual, transgender revolution, the, the revolt against the fixity of, of gender, that we're also looking at a testimony to what happens in a Genesis 3 world east of Eden when we're now entering a level of, of confusion that biblically would be defined as a, as a form of rebellion that, uh, that at the level of identity should uh, leave us very humbled by what this tells us about humanity at large. One of the problems in, in addressing these issues is that we often don't know where to start. And here at the beginning of this conference, my responsibility is at least to get the conversation started and I want to make sure we start with the Scripture. 
I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1 as we seek to understand these things together. Biblically-minded Christians naturally turn to the Scriptures. This is what we know to be the inerrant and infallible Word of God. This is God's Word to us, and it is to God's Word that we turn. And there are many texts in Scripture to which we could turn. I turn to this text because it's the most comprehensive, most encyclopedic text dealing with the issues that seem to be right before us. And furthermore, it puts it in a context of biblical theology that is priceless to us. Paul begins writing, we'll look first at verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Well, this is the word of the Lord, not merely the word of the Apostle Paul, but it comes to us by the ministry of the Apostle Paul who tells us in the very beginning of this passage, as we began reading, that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. He tells us that in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And those of you who know the the, the theology of the Apostle Paul they will understand that this righteousness of God reflects truly of God's own personal righteousness, his, his righteous perfection and his, his absolute justice, his, his goodness, his moral rectitude, his holiness. But in Pauline theology, it also refers, whenever the gospel is at stake, to that righteousness which by faith becomes ours. That righteousness imputed to us, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, such that when the Father looks to us, to those who are in Christ, he sees not our sin, but the righteousness of his own beloved Son. And the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And and that's why Martin Luther found himself a Christian in reading not just the Bible and not just the book of Romans, but Romans chapter 1, verse 17, when he read, the just shall live by faith. And he came to understand how he, though unrighteous, to be accepted by an unconditionally 
infinitely righteous God. But it's not just the righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel. It's also the wrath of God that's revealed in the gospel. And very quickly, when we look at it, we see it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The next phrase is so crucial in verse 18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We are here introduced to the universal human conspiracy into which every one of us is born. It is the conspiracy to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And, and, and this is not something that we just join at some point along our lifespan. This is not something that certain human beings give themselves to. This is fallen humanity. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We are here given the, uh, the gospel prescription, the gospel pathology of, uh, of what it means to be fallen humanity. It is to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, as evangelicals, that reminds us, this is why we're so desperately in need of special revelation in Scripture. This is why we need the God who speaks to us. Because otherwise, we would just continue suppressing truth and unrighteousness. God's revelation made very clear here in nature and, and, and in the, the creation, both externally in the things that are made and internally in that moral capacity that is at least part of the imago dei. Those things restrain sin and contain genuine revelation, but not enough to save because we corrupt what we find there, we confuse what we find there, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then this indictment of sinful humanity continues, and what's so important is that we recognize, before we get to the portion of the text that deals explicitly with anything like sexuality, the thing we need to recognize is that we are all already indicted. We are, we are not told that this is about some people in some places at some times. This is about humanity writ large. This is our story. And then we read, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And we're told here that none of us has an excuse because of the revelation that is accessible to us, but we're also told that that revelation won't be enough to save. That's why the gospel, and the gospel alone, is Paul's confidence. But you'll notice as we have very little time here, there are three different passages in which Paul uses a very crucial word. It's that word exchange. It appears in verse 23, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, reptiles. It shows up two verses later because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It's found two verses later. For their, their women exchanged natural relations. There's that exchange for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. You know, this, this trifold exchange is supposed to get our attention. And you don't have to know a great deal about ancient Greco-Roman rhetoric to know that when someone shows up in three repetitions like this, you're, you're supposed to pay a lot of attention because a profound point is being demonstrated here. And, and it's not a point about some people. It's a point about all of humanity. This exchange is not something made by certain people at a certain place at a certain time. It's an exchange that is made east of Eden by all of humanity. This is what we have done. And yet the Apostle Paul shows us this is how it shows up. This is how you see it. Because it ends up being not only the rejection of God's law, not only the, the rejection of, of, of what has been revealed on Sinai and, and beyond, it, it, it's also the rejection of what is taught in that nature that was crying out to us, there is a creator and he has a plan that leads to his glory and to human flourishing. Far too many evangelicals read this passage and say, well, there, there we find it. There, there, there's the exchange and, and there we find those who are involved in same-sex behaviors and same-sex relationships. They are definitely identified as those who have made this exchange. Well, they definitely are, but only after everyone is included. 
This is a picture. It's not a solitary indictment of certain kinds of sin. It's a demonstration that certain kinds of sin, certain sinful acts, and even certain, even certain patterns of, of passion point to that great rupture in creation, point to that great, that great tear in the fabric of the universe that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. And God's response, that God whose righteousness is referred to in verse 17, God's response shows up similarly in a trifold pattern. As exchange is repeated, it's there three times, so also God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Then in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Here's a real problem, again, with evangelical preaching. A lot of evangelical preachers will preach a text like this and they will say, America, you better wake up because otherwise God will give us over. If America doesn't turn from its wicked ways and if America doesn't get itself right and, and, and in accordance with the law of God, then God's going to give us over just like he gave over so many other empires and civilizations and nations before. It's too late. We were given over in Genesis 3. This is not something that just might happen. This is something that just did happen. With Adam and Eve, our first mother and father, and everything we know now about the world we observe, it only makes sense if you look at it through the lens of understanding that what Genesis 3 represented was the great tear in the fabric of the universe, the great, the great rip in creation, the, the, the great turning upside down, the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. And does this tell us that those who are involved in same-sex acts, those who would formalize same-sex relationships are involved in that conspiracy? It certainly does. Only after it makes clear that every one of us was in this conspiracy before them. And by the way, the Apostle Paul, as he does elsewhere, decides to end with a catalog of sins just to make his point clear. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Look at this list. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Yikes. We are all indicted co-conspirators. But notice that last verse, and think of what Theo Hobson said about that moral revolution. It, it only is completed when that third part takes place, when those who will not celebrate are condemned. And realize the Apostle Paul beat him to it. Look at the last verse of chapter 1. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now notice that that refers not just to, say, chapter 1 verse 26 and 27 that refers to everything that proceeds. In other words, if at any point the church of the Lord Jesus Christ says that what God declares to be sin isn't sin, we commit treason against the gospel. Because what we do is, is so deadly as to tell people you don't need Christ in that sense, that that sin makes very clear you desperately, eternally need Christ. And, and thus it is a slander against the gospel for us to redefine sin in any way, whether it be any of the sins listed in, in this or, or the sin that de jour, given the contemporary moment, is the sin that the society or even many within the institutional church would say 
we need to redefine. It's important we know this. It's important that we situate this. And very quickly, I would ask you to turn with me then to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where similarly you have a passage, especially beginning in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But And such are some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, as, as you think about evangelical Christianity, and I, I have to think about this a great deal because I, uh, I just turned 55 and I've, I've lived a lot of it. Um, when I was elected president of Southern Seminary, I was 33. People, I was actually asked in a press conference, what are you going to do about it? And uh, I said, uh, I'm going to age. And uh, I stand before you as one who has kept that pledge, and uh, I, I feel the faithfulness of it. In 1977, I was a high school senior in Pompano Beach, Florida, and uh, that's Broward County, right? The, the county to the south of us was Dade County, and, and uh, right about then, the, the, the Dade County government, having consolidated Miami-Dade County, passed the, one of the first gay rights ordinances in America, and uh, uh, there was an enormous amount of outcry. It was late 1970s. It was, this kind of thing was virtually unheard of, and... Uh, uh, a woman who was the spokesperson for the Florida citrus business. We all knew her in Florida because she was always standing out in the Orange Grove with uh, a glass of orange juice. Anita Bryant, she uh, she was quite agitated about this. She started uh, leading a repeal effort over against the uh, the Dade Metro Commission and uh, eventually held a big meeting in the Miami Beach Convention Center, which took place in the spring, and uh, invited all evangelical Christians to come. And, and I was one. I was 17 years old in that room uh, when this uh, when this took place. And when that rally took place, and it was quite successful politically. Eventually, the Dade Metro government had to rescind that, uh, that ordinance. And, uh, I, I bring that up with you because I think about what it was like then to be a 17-year-old in that room and, and hearing this, and there, were, there was a preacher by the name of Jerry Falwell who was there. We never heard of him. Uh, uh, he wasn't famous yet, but he was there, and he was, he was willing to speak to that. I, I listened to him preach. There were several other speakers, and all I can tell you is is, is that most of the things in retrospect that I think about, because that night's very alive in my mind, most of the things that were said there were right. The, the problem is they just weren't nearly right enough. And, and I recognize that going back to the late 1970s, evangelicals struggling with this, they, they, they had some text to go to, but they didn't have any biblical theology to lay this out in a way that, uh, that would lead to a greater Christian understanding and thus to a greater Christian responsibility and more faithful gospel ministry. we We've learned as evangelicals to situate wherever we are and, and whatever text or whatever question we have in the, in the great meta-narrative of the scripture of creation and fall and redemption and new creation. And we come to understand that without that and without an understanding of biblical theology, we're just looking at isolated texts. And, and we'll get a lot of things right, but we won't get them right enough. One of the things we note as we look to Romans and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is that Paul's concern is always the gospel. It is it's always the church. Paul, Paul is not a moralist. Paul is a gospel preacher. But he does understand, as the Holy Spirit's inspiring him, that, uh, that, that sexual sin is itself 
first of all, a pointer to our desperate need for the gospel. And, and, and then he understands that for the church, it is a test of gospel credibility. That's the very point of his letter in 1 Corinthians. And, and as we know, there was a previous letter. He makes reference to it. And between 1 Corinthians and what we call 2 Corinthians, there was evidently another letter. He calls that the hard letter. And all I've got to say is the 1 Corinthians isn't the hard letter. The Holy Spirit did not want us to have the hard letter. <laughs> because this one's pretty hard. Paul says in chapter 5 that we're not even to have fellowship. He, he says, I wrote to you in my letter. That's the one we don't have. One of the two we don't have. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I, I was taught that. I was taught that as a, uh, as a boy in Sunday school and church. We're not to associate with sexually immoral people. And no one ever got to the next part of that verse in the text in chapter Five, he says in verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. That, that was, I, I think the evangelical church I knew as a boy was actually fairly happy with that, just being out of the world, if that meant not having to deal with this. We're not living in a situation in which that is possible. We're not living in a situation in which that can correspond in any way to gospel faithfulness. The clear distinction here between the church and the world is made abundantly clear by Paul. We're not to associate with sexually immoral people inside the church, but, but, but in the world we're to be a gospel people, and that means that we're in contact with sinners of every single variety, even as those who make up the church, he makes clear. And the text in the next chapter is made up of those who come out of every single sin. He's so explicit. One of the things we need to note in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is the preciseness of his Holy Spirit-inspired vocabulary. Without going into exegetical detail here, the Apostle Paul actually puts together two words as one word, clearly referencing back to Leviticus. The Apostle Paul understands biblical theology. The Holy Spirit's inspiring him to do this biblical theology, pointing out the continuity of the moral law and of the fact that creation itself is is, is the indicator, and, and not the creation Genesis 3 and forward, the, the creation as God meant it in Eden, the, the, the creation that's a hint of the new creation that's coming, the, that, that marriage and gender are part of the goodness of, of God's creation, given to us as gifts, and, and God's gifts always point to two things simultaneously, his glory and human flourishing. The denial of those gifts, the subversion of those gifts, the confusion of those gifts leads inevitably to human pain, to a loss of human flourishing. Well, we look to this in the explicit language, and we understand there are those who are now, in terms of these biblical texts, there are rejectionists. There are those who are saying that the human flourishing will only take place if these texts are stared down and rejected. And then there are others who are following a revisionist argument, saying, no, we can, we can make peace with this sexual revolution by understanding these texts in a way the Christian church never understood them before because data was lacking then that we have now, and undoubtedly data was lacking then that we have now, one of the things we should not be embarrassed to say is that we are learning. One of the embarrassments that I have to bear is that I have written on some of these issues now for nearly 30 years, and, and at a couple of points, I have to say I got that wrong, and we've got to go back and correct it, correct it by Scripture. Now, early in this controversy, I felt it quite necessary in order to, to make clear the gospel to deny anything like a sexual orientation. And uh, speaking at an event for the National Association of Evangelicals 20-something years ago, I I made that point. I repent of that. I, I believe that a, a biblical theological understanding, a, a robust biblical theology would point to us that, that human sexual affective uh, profiles, that who we are sexually, is far more deeply rooted than just the will, if, if that were so easy. 
But Genesis 3 explains that. Helps us to understand that this complex of same-sex challenges coming to us is something that is deeply rooted in the biblical story itself and, and something that we need to take with far greater seriousness than we've taken in the past, understanding that that requires a far more robust gospel response than anything the church has come up with heretofore. This is a real challenge to us on biblical authority. If the revisionist arguments are right, then we've got to join them. I don't believe for a minute they are right. I've done a lot of writing about why I, I don't believe that. I don't believe the Christian church has misread scripture for two millennia. Uh, I don't believe that, uh, that, that, that there was information lacking to the Holy Spirit that would have changed the meaning of these texts information that's now available to us. But in terms of our ministry, in terms of our faithfulness, we've got to take all this into consideration. We have to do so fast. We need to be rescued not only by Scripture, but fundamentally by biblical theology. And we need to understand that it is on that basis, the biblical theology, that someone of the stature of Wolfhard Pannenberg, recently deceased great theologian of Germany, who said that a church that accepts a revision on this issue of same-sex relationships is a church that ceases being one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. It's an immense statement. We come to understand as we look to Scripture that a text like Romans 1 points us to the fallenness of all humanity because, after all, the climax of that argument isn't look at those sinners, but Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we, we come to understand that rupture in the universe, that, that rip in creation of human sin, and sexual sin in particular, we come to understand that now we are seeing the flowering of virtually all of this simultaneously. We, we need to admit it didn't start with same-sex marriage. We need to, to admit it didn't start with same-sex relationships. It didn't start with those who are advocates for the normalization of homosexuality in various forms. It didn't start the transgender movement. It's, it started with heterosexual sin. It started with the heterosexual subversion of marriage. And as a matter of fact, when we talk about the fact that it didn't start with same-sex marriage, you have to go back to the fact that if you were to rewind history to the beginning of the 20th century, not one Christian denomination of any sort had anything but absolute theological opposition to contraception. And, and uh, it was the, uh, the Anglican Church that was the first to break on that in the, uh, the early pre-war period in between World War I and World War II. And, and quickly things happened, and, and a lot of it happened without much forethought whatsoever, that's a different conversation to be had, but it is interesting to say that the 20th century has been, has been a way of, has been an era of, of distancing, of alienating human experience from, uh, from the even natural constraints that had once boundaried human sexual and intimate relationships. And then came the divorce revolution, and the divorce revolution has done far more harm to marriage than same-sex marriage will ever do. Uh, long before the proponents of same-sex marriage showed up, heterosexuals showed how to destroy marriage by making it a tentative, hypothetical union for so long as it may last, turning it merely into a contract to be treated as any other contract as a consumer good uh, to be continued so long as it brings both parties mutual benefit. And then cohabitation. I mean, that, now we're looking at the fact that Census Bureau tells us that the first intimate relationship, the first residential relationship for most young adults is, is cohabitation to the point that scholars like Bradford Wilcox and others are pointing out marriage is now not even a part of that horizon. Now it's, now it's cohabitation not before marriage, it's cohabitation rather than marriage. And the, the inevitable social pathologies that come from that are just massive. And, and again, what we're looking at here is what scripture calls undeniably, unmistakably a sexual sin. And it's interesting that the people who are revisionists, when it comes to a lot of the same sex things, they're not revisionists when it comes to that. 
No one's arguing that the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit were unaware of the fact that heterosexual people meant to cohabitate together without marriage. Scripture is very clear that it understands that sexual orientation. And in both the Old Testament and the New, it deals with that. And, of course, it's not just revolution. Now, just some of you may have seen, and if you didn't, you need to know about 60 Minutes Last Night on the genetic revolution and the rise of designer babies in which you actually had Lee Silver of Princeton University tell CBS News last night having babies the natural way is too dangerous because it leads to failed products, otherwise known as human beings. And we look at this and we recognize none of this would be possible if, 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 we, had, if we maintained the wholeness, the, the, the complementarity, the sanctity of marriage as found in Genesis chapter 2. All of this is a, is, is, is a demonstration of that suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. All of this is a demonstration of what it means for humanity to say we know best for ourselves. Not just same-sex attracted humanity, all of humanity. And, and, and by the time the, the moral revolution on same-sex relationships and same-sex acts, by the time that arrived on the scene, most of the moral revolution had already happened. And, and when we do an autopsy on this, we go back to say it can only happen if Romans 1 correctly diagnoses the situation, as of course it does, demonstrating, to use common language now, that secularization had to precede the moral revolution. The, the denial of the creator and the binding authority of the God who is and the God who speaks that had to precede the kind of moral revolution we're now experiencing. It wouldn't be possible if people felt accountable to a creator who had spoken in his word so clearly and definitively as God has. We start to look at all of this and we recognize this isn't just a single issue. This isn't something that can be addressed just by, by saying this is it. Here, here's This thread points to the tear and it's the singular problem. It's all sin. It's a culture that increasingly is at war with the very notion of sin. And this creates some real challenges for us. And, and that's why we're here. We're not here because we were just uh, casually interested in this because we're casually committed to the gospel and because we, we had the idea that at some point this might become a frontline, non-negotiable, non-escapable issue for us. We are here, we need to admit, at least partly out of a sense of desperation. Uh, that desperation is not the desperation of those who believe we do not know what God would have us to think, but the desperation of people who say we desperately want to get this right because the gospel is at stake. And if we desperately want to get this right, we've got to bring every resource of biblical theology and, and, and all of Scripture together from Genesis to Revelation. We need to bring together everything the church has rightly taught on this issue. We need to subject the entire history of the Christian church to our own theological and biblical scrutiny and say, here we got it right, here we got it wrong. We need to measure everything we say, everything we do by whether or not there's sufficient Bible in it and, and, and thus sufficient gospel in it. We need to understand that in every conversation we have, every, every article we write, every, every tweet we tweet, the Apostle Paul didn't have to worry about that. The gospel is ultimately at stake. And we do realize, standing on this precipice, that everything is changing around us. We understand that the believing church is going to be put in the position of being a, not a moral majority, as if it ever was, but a moral minority, a, a cognitive minority. We come to understand that we are in a position that was very different than what we thought before. And then we come to understand that we were at peace when we never should have been at peace. And the disappearance of cultural Christianity, like a morning mist, 
is a reminder to us that it was cultural and not Christianity. And, and, and we are, we need to look each other in the eye, we are accustomed to ministry from the top side of the culture, not from the underside. We are, we are accustomed to speaking from a position of strength and respect and credibility, and now we're going to be facing the reality that we are already, in much of America, speaking from a position of a loss of credibility, speaking from the underside, speaking from the, the wrong side of the moral equation. This is something our grandparents and parents did not have to Consider, this is something all of us now have to face. Because we're involved in Christian ministry now. This is what's staring us right now in the face, this moral revolution. When we gather together in an event like this, we, we need humbly to have our hearts broken, not about their sin, but about our sin. We need to come to understand that our desperation is not just what are we going to do now, but... How is it that we came to be found righteous by a holy and perfect and just God? And, and, and we, we have to come back and say, we do know what the Scripture teaches. We, we need to check Scripture by Scripture. We need to be involved not only in exegesis but in biblical theology. But we really are here because we know what the Bible says. We desperately want to know, what do we do now? What do we say? How do we minister What's it going to be like to minister on the other side of this? How do we demonstrate compassion and truth? How do we demonstrate humility when the church at its most humble has to be very clear about God's own moral judgment? How, how do we make clear that we're brokenhearted, not because our moral sensitivities are bruised and offended, but because the gospel's at stake and we believe eternity is thus at stake? How do we do what the Apostle Paul tells us here to do? And that is to separate from those who are determined to be sexually immoral in the church and thus denying the power of the gospel while at the same time not separating ourselves from the sexually immoral of the world. What does that look like? It's going to take an awful lot of Christian thinking. It's going to take a lot of, a lot of prayer, a lot of agonizing conversations. It's, it's going to be the kind of conversations that take place in the middle of an emergency. There is no real opportunity for us to say, hey, let's take a hiatus from history and let's see if we can take the next five or ten years to think these issues through carefully before we say anything. It's too late. We've got folks looking at us squarely in the face right now saying, what do I do with this? We're going to have to learn whole new moral categories the Christian church has ignored for far too long at the expense of the gospel. We're going to have to learn about sexual renunciation. Something that is clearly a destined scripture, understanding that not just for some people for a lifetime, but for everyone north of puberty for some time, sexual renunciation is actually what's required of us to, to faithfully follow Christ. And, and even while we celebrate the goodness of God's gift to sexuality, we also have to understand that we've contributed to a part of this problem by making sexuality almost appear to be eschatological when it isn't. Not even inside the context of marriage. No, something else is eschatological. It's a bride and a bridegroom. The man and the woman point to that eschatological reality. And the scripture tells us to focus our eyes upon it. The marriage supper of the Lamb. We really do know what the Bible teaches. What we're trying to figure out is how rightly to apply that in this world and this time. As Augustine would remind us, everything has changed and nothing has changed. In the world around us, everything's changed and changing quickly, but when it comes to the gospel, nothing has changed. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first 
and also to the Gentile. I know you believe it so. I know that's why you're here. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you will use your word and our reflections upon your word such that the Holy Spirit would conform us to the image of Christ and our ministries to the image of Christ. We pray this in the name of our only Redeemer and Rescuer, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. You can subscribe online at ERLC.com and check back next week as we learn about the Bible's teaching on diversity in the kingdom.